0: want to invite you then to turn to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12, and you'll find that on page 263 in the Church Bible. I'm also going to ask you this morning to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. You might want to put a finger in there, page 874. Now Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, page 874, but we're going to begin with 2 Samuel chapter 12 page 263. And I'm going to begin reading from verse 13. Let's hear God's word together. David said to Nathan, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead for they said, behold, while the child was yet alive we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept. You wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife. Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. We're back now to the very beginning of chapter 11, the nation at war. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now, let's just turn forward to Luke's Gospel, please, chapter 15, Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, page 874 in your Black Bibles, page 874. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, this is the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Go down to verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in these moments together, we are with one another but we are also with you before one another we are in your hands and so in the quietness would you speak and cause us to turn afresh to you in all your glory and grace in Christ's name we pray amen friends I want to talk to you this morning about repentance I want to talk about what repentance is. I want to talk about what repentance looks like, even what repentance feels like. This passage in Second Samuel chapter 12 is an illustration of repentance. This is what it looks like when a sinful person meets a holy God and tastes His grace. Tastes His grace deeply in their life. So this sermon this morning is a a little bit different, I think. It's it's why we read Luke chapter 15 as well. We're going to look at both passages together in a way, side by side. Uh, Nearly always, you know, in our morning worship, we go through a passage in detail. Somebody said to me last week, you're going through it with a fine tooth comb. Well, it's perhaps slightly different this morning. Sometimes we need to just stand back a little bit and see the big picture of Who God is and how He works through the whole Bible. What David does here in chapter twelve is the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel in a nutshell is that the Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. The lost, the broken, the damaged, the sinful, the unrighteous. He did not come to seek and save the righteous. No, oh, he came to save the lost and through through repentance to bring them back to him and to restore them. To restore them. I discovered this week, and I know, again, you're going to think it's all I do all week long. I discovered there is a program on television called The Repair Shop. Somebody happened to have it on in our home, and I stumbled across. I don't know if any of you ever watch this program, The Repair Shop. I guess it's my stage of life now you're into this kind of thing. Antiques Roadshow is next, isn't it? It's the next thing on the list. But this astonishing program, beautiful, beautiful objects, family heirlooms that have been so precious to people down through the years, things that mean the world to them, lovely objects, and yet they're damaged. And they are brought into the master craftsman's workshop, and it's laid out on the bench in front of him or her, and he or she looks at it and says, I I can fix this. I know what to do with it. There's a beauty to that, isn't there? Now, here's a question. Is that item even more beautiful after it has been restored than before? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Some of you will know about kintsugi. It's a Japanese art of repairing broken things, but repairing them with gold. The word kintsugi, it means golden joinery taking broken things and stitching them together with gold in the seam so that it's not just that you put it back together, but you put it back together now with more worth in it than there was before, more beauty because of what has happened to it. Breakage and repair becomes part of the history of an object rather than something to disguise and to pretend about. Well, we're going to come to that, David's repentance in this chapter, but before we come to it in chapter 12, we have to face something, don't we, here in the text that we read? Something that I suspect troubles us, and maybe if it didn't trouble you, perhaps we weren't reading closely enough. Do you see the the difficulty before us this morning? This has been a real think-stopper for me all week, and I, I don't think yet I've got the better of this. Look at verse 13 again. Nathan said to David, "'The Lord also has put away your sin. "'You shall not die. "'Nevertheless, because by this deed "'you have utterly scorned the Lord, "'the child who is born to you shall die.'" Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And the end result, of course, is that this child dies this innocent child dies. There's so much to wrestle with here, isn't there? On the one hand, is David forgiven for his sin or not? It's one thing to say your sin has been put away, David, but then it looks like the sin is put on an innocent child who dies instead. And then in terms of that child themselves, we think how on earth can this ever be right or fair for this to happen? I think there are four things to say here, four things. Number one, I just don't think there is an easy answer to this. I don't think there is an easy answer to this. I I think right here, we are in the presence of great mystery, and in that mystery, we need to tread carefully, don't we, in what we do and don't ascribe to God. God, be slow, friends, to ascribe wrongdoing to God when we do not have all the pieces of the puzzle, all the evidence. We don't know how this can be right or fair. God acts at times, doesn't He, in ways that we cannot understand. And and, and this is far from being the only incident like this in Scripture, isn't it? Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 57. Just listen, the righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. The righteous man rests in their beds and enters into peace. Sometimes the people that we expect to live forever are taken, and the people that we would expect God to take live. Live. What well, one thing I think we need to do here is notice David's response. Do you notice there is no indignation from David? I think such is his deep, profound brokenness about his own sin. I think David accepts his sin is going to have consequences for his family. Perhaps we should learn from that. But also, second thing to say here, friends, I want, us to, encourage, I want to encourage us to be very very careful about ever drawing connections from this particular story to our own afflictions or the afflictions of our children. Do you remember the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel chapter 9? He, he meets a man born blind and his disciples say to Jesus, who sinned here that this man was born blind? Did this man sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus says, Neither. In fact, this man was born blind so that God's work in the world could be displayed in him. This man was born blind so that God's work in the world would be displayed in him. That's a very significant point. We often hear hear that no one sinned bit without hearing the reason for the affliction so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Affliction in God's hands is always a tool for a greater purpose. I was listening to Joni Erickson tada speaking this week. Many of you will know of Joni Erickson tada She was paralyzed in a swimming accident as a young woman and has spent her entire life, entire life more or less completely wheelchair-bound. Here's what she said this week. Suffering, suffering, ah, there is not much good in it There is not much good in it, but it will teach you who you are. Suffering is the textbook which will squeeze out of us who we really are. I think that's how we're meant to see what God is doing here with David. In the loss of this child to him, what is God doing in David's life, in his soul, in the hidden recesses of his being? Can we trust that in so terrible a loss, God is working so great a purpose for the world that we cannot imagine? Can God do that? Number three, third thing to say. I I think we should at least observe this. Many commentators point this out. Many commentators say there is a kind of mercy in this early death for the child. A son born from this adulterous union would forever sit uncomfortably on the throne as David's successor. Think about what we say at the end of life. Many, many of us say this, don't we? As somebody dies after being ravaged by sickness and by disease, when, when the end comes, ah, we say, it is a mercy. It is a mercy. Is, is it possible that here there is a mercy. As this child grew in strength and stature, one writer says, as he grew, division and shame would rest on his shoulders and could be expected forever in the kingdom through his mere presence. Perhaps, maybe, I don't know. Notice finally, here's, here's the fourth thing. I think this is perhaps the most helpful. This child is lost to David. David lost to him as part of God, humbling David, humbling him to the very core of his being, yes. This child is lost to David, but he is not lost to God. And therefore, he is not really lost to David. Look what David says at the end in verse 23, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Listen to these words. This is what I read this week that helped me tremendously. David's response reminds us that death does not sever our relationship with children who have died. They are not truly lost to us. Rather, we are separated by death and time, soon to be rejoined in Christ. I shall go to him. That relationship between David and that little child is not ended, but their meeting is not to be in this world. The separation shall be but temporary, and who could conceive the joy of reunion, reunion never to be broken by separation evermore. Then this writer goes on to say this, and perhaps for some of us in this room this morning, this is profoundly helpful. Grieving parents should trust that their children in heaven are better provided for by God than they could have been with us. We think especially of children who are lost in the womb. They suffer and lose nothing by missing out on this wicked world. Covenant children who die at birth will never breathe the air of a fallen world, but spend their entire conscious existence in a state of holiness amid the glories of heaven. Like David, we should trust that God has taken our departed children to himself. In light of this, can we really complain on our children's behalf? While we grieve for ourselves, is there any cause for us to sorrow for them? Well, friends, this is a great mystery. Perhaps you have other reflections. You're welcome to speak to me, ask me, engage with the difficulty of what's in front of us. But here it is, God's word, God speaking to us. I want us just to look at David's response to all of it. Verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And he fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Look at his response in verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself after the child dies. And changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And of course, you can see it there. This is, this is all a great shock, isn't it? To his servants around him. For in this culture, what David has done is back to front. When somebody dies, you mourn them for seven days. Not, not while they're still alive. David seems to have reversed it all. He mourns and fasts when the child is alive, but then he eats when the child is dead. But actually, it is because of the depth of what God is doing in David's life that he acts this way. This is deep repentance. And it is deep repentance going hand in hand with profound acceptance of God's goodness. Listen to Alistair Begg. He says, David takes, verse 20, David takes into the house of God the only damaged object that it is ever legitimate to bring. What is that? A broken and contrite heart. A broken and contrite heart. Do you remember 1 Samuel chapter 15? Samuel says, sacrifice and offering, burnt offering. You did not desire God. It's not not what God really wants, the brokenness of an animal. No, what the Lord desires is obeying His voice, hearing His voice. Yes, you need sacrifices when it all goes wrong, but they are pictures of what it is that God most wants. Not a broken animal, but a broken heart, a broken heart that says to God, I need you. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so I want to just show us two things this morning about repentance, two things about repentance from 2 Samuel 12, Luke 15, two things that I think are so, so life-giving, so important for us. Number one, Repentance is seeing sin for what it really is. Repentance is seeing sin for what it really is. And number two, repentance is receiving grace for what it really is. Number one, seeing sin for what it really is. Do you know why David is pleading even though God has said the child will die? It's because he knows he has nothing apart from God's mercy, doesn't he? he has nothing. He accepts that what he has done has consequences. He knows the full and true extent of his sin. He, he sees his sin for what it really is. No longer cover-up. The man of the, the cover-ups and the digging and the digging is gone. I have sinned. Do you, know, do you know what the great irony in that parable of the lost son is? The the Pharisees in verse 1, do you remember, are grumbling because Jesus is coming near to sinners. The great irony is that Jesus sees sin as even more sinful than the Pharisees. The Lord Jesus alone knows how terrible sin is. That's why in that story, he, he paints the picture of the most shocking kind of sin imaginable. It is the kind of sin that is like murdering your own father. See, the, the younger son, he's not asking his dad for a loan. He's not saying, can you lend me some money, dad, while I go off and sow my wild oats for a few years. No, he, he's asking for his inheritance in advance, isn't he? You don't, you don't do it in our day. And you certainly didn't do it in this day. What he's saying to his dad is, dad, I wish you were dead. W- would you hurry up and die? Roll over and die and give me what's coming to me. In Jesus' story, when he divided the proper property, that line, divided the property, it is literally he divided the living between them, that the father gave up his life for the son. He gave him his livelihood, his, his status, his possessions, his investments. It might have taken weeks or months to sort it out, but he did it. Here, have it, go. Do you know the young son, friends, in Luke 15 is exactly like King David. This is somebody who murders his father, effectively takes the loot, and then wastes it, ruins it, spends it, loses it, and in the end ends up living like a Gentile. That's the point of the pigs in the story, isn't it? No Jew ever touched pigs or ate pigs, let alone looked after pigs, let alone ate what pigs ate. This is the lowest of the low. His entire life, careers are to control the difference, isn't there, between getting a ticket for speeding and getting a ticket for speeding that causes death by dangerous driving. No, this is somebody who's stolen the family car, used it to to maim and injure, and has fled the country as they see the bailiffs coming. Friends, the younger son is just like King David. It is not a little sin. You see what God is doing here. We're going to come to the end of the the chapter 12. Isn't Isn't it a shock what happens to David? Isn't it a shock what happens to the younger son on his return? Oh, God is saying to us, friends, in repentance, in understanding our own sin, God is saying to us, there is nobody I will not welcome. Oh, there is nobody who cannot come to me, whether they have committed, well, take your pick from what David has done. What's the worst thing of what he did? What's the worst thing the younger son did? Oh, Mr. Pharisee, the Lord Jesus is saying, do you know what? The people I welcome are even worse than you think they are. There is no one I won't touch, no one I won't call to my side as my own. You know, some of us this morning, we need this, don't we? We need this like, like water in a desert, we are younger sons, some of us. We're King Davids. We've done it all. We couldn't wait to get away, maybe from parents. We certainly couldn't wait to get away from God and to go it alone. And now here we are this morning, many years later, looking back over the wreckage, decisions we made and people we hurt. and We've covered up and dug and dug and dug down into our hole of selfishness and the, the fingerprints of our own recklessness seem to be all over our lives. And we know that relationships are broken, children are hurt, parents are perplexed. And here we are inside a churchy world where everybody's lives seem to be neat and tidy and in order. We, we wonder, we secretly wonder if Jesus can really be for me what I've done. Listen to this, J.C. Ryle, my favorite bishop, you know I love him. Do we feel bad and wicked and guilty and deserving of God's anger? Is the remembrance of our past lives bitter to us? Does the recollection of our past conduct make us ashamed? Then we are the very people who ought to run to Christ, just as we are making no useless delay. Christ will receive us graciously, pardon us freely, and give us eternal life. He receives sinners. Oh, friends, David sought God. David sought God. It's as though David is saying, isn't he, Lord, my son is suffering because of me, so have mercy on me, and so have mercy on him. David sees his sin, and he doesn't run from God. He runs to him. Do you know what I think is most shocking about Pharisees? Pharisees are people who think they would never do what King David does or never do what the lost son does. Pharisees are happy to leave people outside, outside the house, outside the kingdom, lost, dirty. You're on the outside, so that must be where you belong. You can stay like that. But do you know what grace is? I heard this definition this week. I think this is really beautiful. It's very simple. Grace is God's something for nothing when we don't deserve anything. Grace is God's something for nothing when we don't deserve anything. Oh, you see, repentance is such a a messy but a a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's, It's just when somebody says out loud, plain and simple, I was wrong, I sinned, I messed up, You were right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Repentance is that moment when you kind of find yourself looking in the mirror, don't you? Looking at yourself, thinking, "What on earth was I was I thinking? Did I do that? How could I do that?" Repentance is realizing how far you've wandered from the love of God, not just the law of God. You you notice that in that parable, the son his seeking. He wants to go back to his father, my father who is a world of love. Even the servants in his house have more than enough bread, more than enough. That son has given his fingers to a world of love, and now he wants to go back to it. Repentance is recognizing who you have wronged. Do you notice that in what David says? I have sinned against the Lord. What does the Son say? I have sinned against heaven. Against you, Lord. Repentance is saying what is true, friends. I have sinned against you, Lord. See, the, the sins that we commit are always two directional, aren't they? We never sin in one direction. Whatever we're doing horizontally, it is always sin against God first and foremost. Whatever we do to others, it is sin against him first. I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against my father. Oh, it is against God and against God first and foremost. And only then is it sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and Joab and the child and everyone else. Friends, I want us to learn about repentance. True repentance is so simple. I have sinned. No qualifications, no excuses, no attachments, no carefully managed media statements sent out into the world. Sinners who know they're sinners don't think they need therapy. They need rescue. They need new relationship. I want to encourage us. Repentance is never saying, I'm sorry if... I'm sorry if... Any time you add that little word, if... Your repentance. It's not true repentance. I'm sorry if I hurt you. No, I'm sorry for hurting you. I'm sorry if you're upset by what I said. No, I'm sorry that I upset you. Repentance is, I know what I did is wrong. End of story. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. True. I do not deserve to have the son you've given me, God. This son is a mercy. Oh, he's in your hands. It is all of mercy. God, be merciful to me. Out into the light, no shadows, no camouflage. There is nothing to hide. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Friends, you know, repentance is what leads God to reach down and pick up the broken pieces. I want to finish with this. Number two, repentance is receiving grace for what it really is. Repentance is receiving grace for what it really is. Repentance is part of God's golden joinery. For look, verse 24, aren't you surprised here by God's grace? Look at the extent of it. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. It's the first time we have this word used of David. He sent for her, he took her, he lay with her, but now he is a changed man. He comforted her. Comforted her all the way through his terrible actions in chapter 11. We're never told anything soft or gentle or loving about him. He, he saw, he took Notice this phrase, his wife. She was Uriah's wife in chapter 11. She became David's wife in chapter 11. And now in chapter 12, he comforts his wife. And from their union, Solomon is born. The name Solomon, the name Solomon suggests the Hebrew word for peace, sh- shalom, shalom. You know, you know, back in chapter 11, look back at chapter 11, verse 7 chapter 11, verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Each time there, the word shalom is used. David asked about Joab's peace and about the people's peace and about the peace of the war, but he never once asked about the peace of Uriah, did he? No, he did not want wholeness and life and beauty. He did not want a world of harmony for Uriah. He wanted Uriah dead. And now here in chapter 12, verse 24, he gives him a son with his wife who had been Uriah's wife, and he calls his name the peaceful one, the the whole one, the harmonious one, the man of peace and wholeness. Friends, if we are not shocked at grace, we should be. We should be this man, Lord, blessed in this way. Look what the text says, and the Lord loved him. No, there must be some mistake. This child born to David and Bathsheba, surely God's face will be turned against this child forever. No. The Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name. Jedidiah because of the Lord and friends look how it ends with this we're finished look how it ends David is given the chance to have the spoils of war to have the city called after his name he took the crown of the king from his head the weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head bring the robe for my son kill the fatted calf put a ring on his finger call the band, start the party. David brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. Friends, I want to say as we finish this part of Second Samuel, I want to say that where we are with David and what David did, where you are with him and what David did, how you feel about it, says everything about where you are with God. Oh, 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 I, I could never do that. I'd never do what he did. Or, there but for the grace of God go I. And I want to say as well as we finish that where we are with how God restored him and what God gave him says everything about where we are with grace. Everything about where we are with grace. Him, Lord, he doesn't deserve any of that. Or, can you believe it? Here I am, me, loved, lavishly loved, me of all people. Amen.